0: to Franchise Festival, where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 3, we're alternating monthly between the catalog of Indie Studios Supergiant and highlights from Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog. You can follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest, write to us at FranchiseFestival at gmail.com, and support us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival, where you get access to a bonus episode each month and even vote on future episode topics. The last bonus show, at the time of recording, covered Knuckles Chaotix, and the next one will feature an indie game released in 2014, selected by our patrons. As for us, we're your hosts, Chris and Spencer, and this time we're going to be talking about Transistor. source for our development on this game is an excellent no-clip documentary that's about 40 minutes long, works through all of the nuts and bolts of how this game came to be. Conceptual development began in fall 2011 with the same staff as Bastion. This was their first project designed entirely from a new San Francisco office space. They had, of course, expanded out of uh, their founder's dad's living room and uh, they added a few members to the team between 2012 and 2013. So these are Chris Journey, who joined the engineering team, Josh Barnett, who did user interface and 3D visual effects, and Camilo Venegas worked on modeling and character animation. A year of pre-production saw the team struggle to produce a follow-up to Bastion that uh, retained its level of quality and strength of ideas while also discarding as many of its individual design elements as possible. The staff was pretty nervous about getting stuck in a rut as the Bastion studio, but also had a hard time creating entirely new ideas out of whole cloth, as they had stored up ideas for years to produce Bastion. The earliest version of Transistor featured a male boxer as the main character with a ghost sidekick. The boxer would have been on a mission to resurrect his lover, a female cabaret singer who had been murdered at the start and she would have appeared as a ghostly computer apparition according to concept art found in that documentary
1: i want to play that game the boxer <laughs> ghost buddy cop
0: movie game that would be it does sound pretty neat it looks pretty cool from the um from like the development assets i'm happy that they didn't go in that direction just because it's like it's comparatively more played out right
1: yeah. getting
0: getting to play as the cabaret singer rather than Uh, Her love interest, who uh, is is on a path of vengeance, is just a little bit more novel, I think, for the early 2010s, but the original concept sounds pretty cool, too. The crew quickly became disinterested in this concept, leading Greg Kasavin and Gen Z to resurrect an idea that they had had in the car on the way back from an industry event promoting Bastion. This idea, which was also pretty fun, was a medieval fantasy adventure that followed a bartender lady who fell in love with a traveling male wizard and after the wizard was murdered by assassins using a sword that imprisoned his spirit, she would have sought vengeance on them using that sword. That plan, which obviously is pretty close to the finished product that we have, was converted to a cyberpunk world since the studio had already been designing art assets for a cyberpunk world. The main challenge was figuring out how to make swordplay part of this futuristic setting, but I don't know, we've all seen like anime that has swords and guns and computers and stuff, right? It, it's not that hard.
1: For what it's worth, there's not actually that much sword play. You use a sword, but all your actions are basically shooting beams out of the sword.
0: Oh, that's a good point. Maybe that's it, how they conceptually got around it, eh?
1: Yeah, it huh. it may it's basically a gun that just looks
0: like a sword. Oh, yeah, Squall's Weapon from uh, Final Fantasy VIII. Well, that's both a gun and a sword. Oh, yeah, I guess this doesn't cross over as well. I guess this also... We're splitting hairs. (laughs) (laughs) Full-time development got underway in September 2012. Gen Z's visual design was heavily influenced by Art Nouveau painters Alphonse Mucha and Gustav Klimt. Per an article published in Swarthmore's Daily Gazette, which is now available online as part of the Phoenix's online archive, there are Art Deco inspirations, too, in the game, especially in menus and the urban skyline even though the primary influence is Art Nouveau. The setting of Cloudbank was inspired by Blade Runner, as well as other cyberpunk fiction, but it had an emphasis on Roaring 20s elegance, rather than the grit and grime typically associated with that genre, with things like, uh, what was that recent game, Spencer, Cyberpunk 2077? Yeah. Yeah, It's a little more uh, gritty. The combat was based on turn-based strategy games, I believe they specifically cited XCOM and Final Fantasy Tactics, but they also brought in influences from Magic the Gathering, the card game, for the function system, where a player can choose abilities from those they've unlocked with a cost-based memory capacity, and explore synergies between multiple abilities, like you would in a a deck builder. As a deck builder fan yourself, Spencer, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, it seems kind of
1: like a little bit of a stretch, if I'm being honest, because the concept Mm -hmm. of, you know, having a cost associated with the equipment to limit how much you could have at a time and, uh, be forced to kind of, you know, work within that constraint is Mm -hmm. not unique to deck builders. And I'm sure it's been in plenty of games prior to this, um... If they're Magic fans, and that's what they associated it with, like, it's not completely ridiculous, but I don't know if I would use that as, like, the closest comparison.
0: Right, it's like, I trust their recollection of what inspired it, but also I wouldn't have noticed it if it hadn't been pointed out by the developers. Yeah.
1: Because, like, the combat itself isn't tied to any sort of, like, deck or randomness either. Like, it's all set. Like, the only Mm -hmm. connection really is just that, you know, you have a pool of points that you allocate toward equipping these things and like that just limits how many things you can have simultaneously
0: right and it's not like deck builders weren't present in the video game space in the late 2000s and early 2010s uh, bait and Kytos, for example had a deck building element on the gamecube also on the gamecube from lost kingdoms had a deck yeah. building element I guess deck building was pretty popular in Japanese RPGs in the mid 2000s for some reason.
1: What was that uh, like Game Boy uh, Chain of Memories, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories? The Game Boy Advance Kingdom Hearts game was like had deck builder combat.
0: Yeah, and that was years before this. So there was there would have been a precedent for making the deck building more prominent. It it very much feels like it's uh, around the edges here or informative rather than a primary mechanic.
1: Yeah, I like this better. As much as I love deck builders, I don't love the way that deck building tends to get tied into action games. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's much better and more of like, you know, like a turn-based thing, which we'll get into it, but this does
0: have like a hybrid action turn-based kind of system to it. Yeah, I entirely agree. I think having the deck building be more prominent would have made this game worse. They made the right call. Yeah. The abilities that the team came up with for the main character grew too expansive, but the team eventually realized they could just stick with 16 abilities that could then be combined together in interesting ways, and that produced over 3,000 unique combinations, which uh, I I didn't do the math on that, but Amir Rao, the game's developer, uh, studio founder, did point out that number in the documentary, so I trust him. The devs' concern that players would find just one combo and stick with it led them to implement enemies and in-game challenges called limiters that force you to change your playstyle. For the same reason powers are taken away from you when you lose a life bar in combat, this is sort of a soft way to get players to change up their approach without telling players that they're required to. You know, they, they didn't want to be too prescriptive in that, which, again, I think was to the game's benefit. One interesting problem that arose during development was that testers couldn't originally tell that the voiceover that you're hearing was coming from the protagonist's sword. They thought that it was just a narrator, like in Bastion. Certainly, they knew that they were playing the sequel to Bastion, so they they would say things like, Oh, cool, you're going back to the narrator again, like in Bastion. And uh, Chris Journey, one of the newer members of the team, single-handedly resolved this by making the sword light up whenever the narrator speaks. And so that entirely resolves the issue. The game was self-published by Supergiant on PlayStation 4 and PC in May 2014. Mac and Linux ports followed five months later and an iOS version launched in June 2015. The latest release at the time of recording in early 2023 is the Nintendo Switch version, which was published on November 1st, 2018. And I played that version for the show. What about you, Spencer? Uh, I played the PC version. Nice. Did you play it with controller or mouse and keyboard? I played it with a controller. Uh, okay. Yeah, I wonder how this plays with mouse and keyboard.
1: I my first time uh, through when this came out, I played it with a mouse and keyboard. Um, I don't have any like strong memories associated mm-hmm. with it being good or bad, so
0: yeah, I assume it's just fine. Supergiant was pretty nervous that the game would be regarded as either too different from Bastion or too similar to Bastion. However, Transistor was instead an overnight success, dramatically outstripping the success that they'd found with Bastion a few years earlier. That, if you'll recall from a couple episodes ago, had a slow but steady buildup of sales, and this just hit like a rocket instantly. Reviewers praised it as a big step forward for the studio, getting Supergiant out of the shadow of their debut, and its success meant that they knew by June 2014 that they had the funding to begin work on a third game, which we'll get into in a future episode.
1: This is a pretty narrative-driven game, but it does still have, like, a lot of, um, like, interesting systems associated with the combat and everything. So the general loop is going to be moving through the city of Cloudbank, collecting lore and story about what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. And periodically, uh, these invisible walls will pop up and you'll have uh, an encounter with these, like, semi-robotic creatures called The Process. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, It's isometric overhead perspective in this like Art Nouveau, Art Deco style uh, that we talked about before. Very colorful. Yeah. So the way the combat works is that you have uh, a series of abilities equipped. And when you use them in real time, they tend to be kind of slow and clunky. Mm -hmm. But the way around that is that you can periodically use an ability called Turn, where you freeze time and you can plan out your actions uh you get like a um it's like a meter that depletes as you move or use certain abilities right and you plan out everything you want to do and then when you use up that meter and like end the planning process it all executes very quickly
0: yeah and each ability utilizes a different amount of the turn meter And by customizing those abilities or upgrading them, you can, for example, reduce the amount of space they take up on the turn meter. So you could potentially commit to more actions in the turn-based mode than you could at the start of the game. Yep. Um, It's worth
1: noting when you deplete a turn you can't use any abilities even in real time until it (laughs) replenishes so you do put yourself in a very vulnerable state after using that ability i think the exception is jaunt which is kind of like your dash right Uh, you can still dash when your meter's down but um what i ended up doing as a result of that right if i used turn and led with that then i'd be stuck next to an enemy that still had a quarter health not being Mm -hmm. able to do much and i'd take a lot of damage so i tended to run around in real time and try to chip away at stuff from range until it was low enough that i knew i could use turn to finish them off and then kill them and be able to like move around
0: and get away and recover while the other stuff came after me That's interesting. We took two different approaches to the combat then, and it's nice that the system is flexible enough to reward this, because I would generally open up with a turn volley, but I would end where my character was in a a pretty safe space far away from enemies or behind. uh, The arenas generally feature a little bit of cover. They're these uh, white blocks that can be destroyed with enough attacks, but uh, initially they serve as cover so I would position myself at the end of my series of actions far enough away that I could run around behind cover before enemies got to me, and then I could execute a second turn. I did virtually no fighting in real time in this game. Okay. Have you ever tried to run through this game entirely in real time? I assume it's possible. It's probably—well, I I don't—I think the
1: final boss fight's probably impossible that way. Oh, that's a good point,
0: yeah. Yeah. But
1: yeah, most of it, it's probably done.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, And if, you can ima- get
1: a new game plus where you're upgraded, so it's probably more plausible than. I mean, I've seen someone beat Dark Souls with a banana with a bunch of electrodes plugged into it. I mean, anything is possible. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely not how the game was designed to be played. There, there's like an interesting system. So when... And I don't know the exact mechanics behind how this works. Mm -hmm. When you take a hit that would uh, kill you otherwise, sometimes it would automatically trigger an emergency turn um, to give you a chance to, like, kind of save yourself.
0: Yeah, um, I couldn't figure out when or why that triggered.
1: Yeah, it didn't seem to happen all the time, but that can happen sometimes. But other times, when your hit points are reduced to zero, it... uh, I forget the term it uses. Overload, maybe, like like overloads one of your abilities, which makes it unusable uh, for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I think it's usually the
0: highest value ability.
1: Yeah, it's like two or three access points. Access points are kind of like they're the save points that let you change your ability loadout. Right. And you have to access a certain number of those before you can equip that ability again. And that is a system I like because that does force you into trying uh, like different combinations. You know, you've got, we mentioned the memory capacity, so every skill that you equip takes up a certain number of memory slots, and you get more memory slots as you level up, but Mm -hmm. it is limited, so you will inevitably end up with some abilities that you just can't use, and this gives you a chance to experiment with them, because if, you know, you're always using Breach, and then Breach gets overloaded, you don't want to just have an empty equipment slot for a while, right? You want to go to the the first access point and swap that with something else to use Mm -hmm until that ability
0: regenerates. This also introduces two areas where the developers have really improved from Bastion, one of which is the level-up system, which occurs here much more frequently than in Bastion. You get experience points at the end of each combat encounter, and then, I don't know, I must have hit level like 14 by the end of the game, maybe? It happens frequently enough that Uh, It feels like a a noteworthy upgrade. And it's upgrading more than just your HP each time. So sometimes you get a new ability. Sometimes you can expand your memory capacity. And you even have the option to choose from between several uh, choices when you get a level up sometimes. So there's, uh, there's a lot more player control in the level up system. But also, the connected world makes it so these access points... Uh they're they're similar to the uh what what do you call it? Like the weapon hut in Bastion. Yeah. But whereas there would only be one of those in an area, or you could just change your loadout back at the hub. Here you're always looking for another access point and they they kind of serve like typewriters in the Resident Evil games. They're always a, a happy site. They checkpoint you and give you the opportunity to modify your loadout. They're pretty generous with them too. They are. They there's I don't recall any stretch of the
1: game where they just make you slog through encounter after encounter without access points.
0: It's so elegant. So much yeah. of this game design is elegant, but the way that the the leveling up, the abilities uh being depleted and forcing you to try new loadouts and the frequency with which you get to those access points are just so they're they're tested to perfection. I I can't imagine those three systems intersecting in a better way than they do in this game.
1: We touched on this, but it's worth, you know, talking about. I really like the system of how the abilities work because Mm -hmm. each one you can either equip as your action. Um, You know, it's it's bound to a button and then you use it. And they're all different variations of, like, projectile you shoot pretty much.
0: Right. Um, You get a maximum of four of these. Yeah. But you can also
1: take abilities and equip them as an upgrade to a primary ability to kind of can uh, transfer the properties of that attack onto whatever one that's equipped. Yeah. Or you can equip it to a passive slot, which has some kind of benefit. I yeah. really like this, but it is when they say 3000 unique <laughs> combinations, that's slightly disingenuous. And cause this isn't the case with all of them, but you know, for example, if you take the long range projectile and upgrade it to bounce it's not that different than if you equip the bouncing projectile and upgrade it to have longer range
0: that's a good point i guess they kind of they they go both ways a lot of the time so it it feels more like 1500 unique combinations which i guess is still a ton
1: one thing that i did like i bound uh that charm ability to my dash Mm -hmm. because dash is one that like we mentioned, you can use when your meter's down. Right. So if I ended a turn next to an enemy and I had failed to finish it off, that way you I could just dash through them and then that would charm them and buy me more time to get away and not get punished for ending a turn right next to that enemy. That is so smart. I never tried that. Well, I had to build, for survi- I had to build specifically because I was really kind of pushing myself with how many limiters I had enabled. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about these. So at the end of every encounter, you don't get a set number of experience points. It's always, it's a percentage of the level, mm-hmm. which I guess is not, I don't know. It's not that mechanically that different from just giving you points. I don't right, know right. why I mentioned it, but at, at any <laughs> rate, uh, we strive for
0: accuracy are... here at Franchise Festival.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh limiters are uh what's the system called in bastion were the offerings
0: sacrifices yeah it was it was that one building in the hub where you could you could make an offering to a particular deity and that would negatively impact your abilities or increase the strength of enemies in some way or that sort of thing uh until you turned it off
1: yeah i wish i remember the
0: name of it but i don't
1: yeah limiters you can equip them and it just makes enemies stronger in a way and as a You know, in exchange, when an encounter finishes, you get a larger percentage of a level. Mm -hmm. I've got the same problem with this as I had with it in Bastion. Um, The reward is not worth it. You can stack, once these start stacking up, you can make the game significantly harder for yourself, Mm -hmm. and in exchange, you get like 30, 40, like 30%. Like bonus XP, maybe, but it's not thirty percent of a level. It's thirty percent of what you were gonna get. So if an encounter is gonna give you, you know, six percent of a level, instead now you get eight percent of a level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for it's something... not proportionate. Yeah. Um, so I toward the end I just turned these off because even <laughs> with running like three of these at a time, sometimes more for like the whole game, mm-hmm. I I probably got fewer than three extra levels than if I had just ran through the game
0: baseline. (laughs) Yeah, they they serve much more as a sliding difficulty option than they do as a way to promote your character. Yeah. Uh, I did use these a lot more than Bastion. I think, um, A, it's because I like the combat in this a lot more, so I wanted it to be more difficult, to have to adapt more. But B, I thought that the link between what they were... uh, The link between the increased challenge and the increased experience was slightly higher here than in Bastion. It was more noticeable, so sometimes when I was getting close to a level up, I would equip a few of these just to get there quicker. That's what I usually use the the practice tests for. Oh yeah, I didn't fool around with those.
1: Yeah, there's a little like, side area you can get to. It's a safe zone. It's, like, a weird, like, island, beach that you can teleport to. It's pretty And cute. there are these prescribed, like, challenge encounters you can do there uh, where you have to use a fixed loadout provided to you mm-hmm. and finish the game with some kind of constraint, either uh, you with, like, X amount of turns or within a certain amount of time or without getting hit, something mm-hmm. like that. And that I didn't uh, be thorough with those, but, you know, when I got to, like... 80% of a way to a level, I would pop in there and do a couple of those just to top myself
0: off and get to the next, uh, like, upgrade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember being pretty thorough with those back when I played this the first time because they teach you a lot of cool tricks that you can do with the abilities that you wouldn't think of otherwise. Yeah. But this time I felt like I had my feet under me enough that I, I didn't need to use them too much for that purpose. Yeah. And they're, they're fun. They're fun encounters. Yeah, they're very similar to those uh, challenge areas in Bastion, right? Yeah. They're just centralized here. Another incentive that the game gives
1: you for uh, trying different combinations is with mm-hmm. the lore. So yeah. So yeah. in the story, the sword that you're using, the transistor, it looks like a... I don't know, kind of like a giant USB drive with a yeah, hilt. Yeah, it looks just like that. You're right. And it's... it's uh, They don't explain in, like, full detail, but basically the, like, memories and personalities of, you know, people that have died can be absorbed into the sword. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, you mentioned Cyberpunk 2077, right? It's like how Johnny Silverhand's brain has been uploaded to the... The cloud, basically, it's uh, Lawnmower Man. Is that the movie that does that that I'm thinking of? Oh
0: Lord, I do remember that movie. That was uh, that had some real rough CGI, didn't it?
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was the '90s. I don't think it's Lawnmower Man. There's some other movie. Johnny Depp was in it, right? Where remember, you know what I'm talking about? His consciousness
0: gets uploaded to a computer. Jeez, no, that doesn't ring a bell at all. I'm thinking like, what was it? There was a Johnny mnemonic. There was the Thirteenth Floor. Well, Johnny Mnemonic
1: was Keanu Reeves again, still. I oh know.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnny Depp wasn't in that. He. I was thinking the Thirteenth Floor has echoes of this too, but I don't think Johnny Depp was in that. Yeah, so that's the
1: premise here, and so each ability that you get is tied to a different figure that's been absorbed by the transistor. Mm-hmm. And you can learn more about that, you know, character, you know, their background, what they do, how they died, why they died. Yeah. Um. But. In order to unlock those different chunks of the lore, you have to equip their associated ability in a different slot to -hmm. get a different chunk. So let's say uh, there's a character you fight named Sybil that we'll talk about. And she's the one that gives you, uh, I think, Switch, the one that charms people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn about Sybil, you have to equip that spot as a primary action use it for a little while, then try equipping it as an upgrade to another ability, Mm -hmm. and then after that, upgrade it and use it
0: as just like a passive slot. Yeah, the passive slot, too, will just uh, add a a general change to how your character acts. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Like, I think if you put Jaunt, uh, the teleport, in the passive slot, it just makes your character faster. And there's one where if you put it in the passive slot, it makes turns last longer. Yeah. Just overall changes.
1: Yeah, and there's one that just increases the damage of all abilities by a flat amount.
0: Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, it's,
1: uh, I like this system, right? Mm -hmm. I like that they are encouraging variety in gameplay in order to get to the lore, which is what I think is at the heart of, you know, this game.
0: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's, it's another example of how the developers tried to push you to experiment by giving you a little reward, in this case, more story. Our plans are not to, like, go through and list every single ability.
1: Mm-hmm. But I, one of my favorite combinations I used, though, going through it was uh, Crash is your basic attack. Right. I had that and then uh combined that with, I think it's called Pull. Yeah. That would would yep. uh, pull enemies into melee range of me, and then I would use, there's, like, a slow, high damage long-range attack that I combined with one that splits it up into kind of like a shotgun. So Mm -hmm. it's multiple shorter projectiles that do a lot of damage. So I would pull enemies toward me and then combo it with that, like, shotgun attack. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And do a lot of damage that way, which really fell apart because toward the end of the game, you fight a lot of enemies that after you hit them once, they become, uh, like, invisible and you can't hit them anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my little uh, combo there failed me utterly at the the final part of the game, and I had to switch it up a little bit,
0: but that one-two punch was my go-to a lot. Yeah, that happened to me a few times, too. I I think I favored, I'm not sure I ever didn't have Crash in my repertoire, the basic melee attack, and I usually then had some projectile attack in the second slot, so this was a Breach at first, which is just kind of a basic distance attack, but then you get other ones over time, like you get a sort of a, a machine gun one called Ping later on, Where it's rapid, weak shots, or uh, what was the other one? Bounce, where it, it ricochets around enemies. But over time, I modified my projectile attack to usually have bounce as the augmenter, so I could fire a single shot into a group of enemies and it would multiply the effect by having it bounce around to all of the other nearby enemies. I really liked Help, where you summon a little AI partner. The AI partner's not that useful, but it can serve as a decoy. So I sometimes had that on my third or fourth ability slot. Well, you can manually control the partner, and that yeah, I never did that.
1: Yeah, Mm. I played around with it a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. they are, it's really not worth using if you're not gonna micromanage it. And I did not feel like doing that because it didn't feel like, more powerful than other combinations, mm-hmm. but it did take twice as much work because you had to control two characters. Right, right. So
0: I stopped playing around with that pretty quickly after I started. Yeah, there must be some build that makes it stronger. I, I generally used it only as a decoy, my little my little buddy. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I, I virtually always had Switch, either as its own ability, but more often as a modifier to one of the other abilities, so that at the end of my turn, I would inevitably convert some enemy, and then they would do a lot of the heavy lifting while I ran around to regain my next turn. Pretty neat. Yeah. I can
1: I comboed help with Jaunt a little bit, the dash, because that leaves a copy decoy of yourself behind
0: the enemy's oh. attack every time you dash. So that's... I never could figure out how to use that. It's like they never targeted the decoy for me, but they did for you. Yeah, the
1: decoys got very low health. Oh, so okay. I, I didn't use it that much. Because also, help is a very expensive move to equip. It takes mm-hmm. four memory slots, which right. is a lot. I mean, you start with, what, 10? Yeah,
0: yeah. So especially so... early in the game, that's taking up almost half of your ability slots right there. Yeah,
1: and by the end of the
0: game, you only have, like, what, 14, 16? You don't get a ton more. I want to say it might max out at 16. I think you're right. Yeah, so even
1: at your most powerful help takes up a quarter of all your memory slots and you've got four ability slots, two passive slots, and then up to two upgrade slots each on each of your primary abilities. So mm-hmm. like, you're really limiting how many things you can have equip
0: at a time when you equip something as expensive as help. Um, yeah, and so. you kind of need to optimize during the leveling up process too, because you don't inherently get all of those open options. When you level up, you can, for example, open up another passive slot or open up another modifier slot on one of your active abilities, like you or another limiter, for example. There, there's various options that you choose while leveling up that uh, are going to make some of these things uh, better or worse in the long run. Yeah, not everything is you know, quite perfectly
1: balanced, but again, with as many different possible combinations as there are, I think it's not reasonable to expect them all to be perfectly balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, on the whole, I do really love the system. You know, it's fun to experiment and play around with stuff and find the combinations that you like and are effective.
0: Yeah, the abilities differ pretty meaningfully too. They're not, some of them are stat upgrades, like, uh, one of them makes it so if you hit an enemy harder from behind, you you do more damage than you would otherwise, but most of them differ pretty significantly from one another in how they activate. Yeah. Did you ever use the purge, where it sends a parasite into enemies?
1: Yes, I uh, I combined that with uh, ping so that I could
0: rapidly shoot out those damage over time effects uh, oh. outside of turn. Cool, I never tried it. It reminded me, it sounded like the Cerebral Bore from the game Turok. The cerebral bore's got a little bit more, uh, oh, panache.
1: <laughs> I think is the word I'm going to use.
0: Yeah, a, an instant M rating for a game, right there. Just pulling yeah. the cerebral bore. Yeah, purge is just like a little yellow
1: dot that hits an enemy and then their health ticks down. Cerebral bore has a. A really um, just amazing sound associated it does, with it yeah. and then you get to watch it like stick in an enemy and then they just
0: like twitch as you just uh-huh. see
1: goop shoot out at the side of their head for like 10 seconds
0: yeah maybe that's why i didn't use it i, I tried it <laughs> out and it fell short of my admittedly uh lofty expectations yeah yeah i guess purge is more like a poison effect huh yeah yeah i mean i'm I
1: still like that you made the comparison just because it brings back real joyous memories of the mm-hmm. Cerebral Bore in Turok. Oh, yeah. You you gotta love the Cerebral Bore. Just sitting around playing uh, the Turok Rage Wars multiplayer, you know, four-person <laughs> split screen back when I was like 14 or something. Oh, yeah. So Rage Wars, times. the most exciting Turok game. Man, I'm a Rage Wars apologist. I think most people really dislike it, but I have a lot of a lot of good memories associated with Rage Wars. This is why
0: we're such good buddies, Spencer. I would actually say that Rage Wars was the Turok game that I spent the most time with. Oh, yeah. It had that silly Triceratops, man. <laughs> There's a lot of goofiness in that game. Yeah. You want to move on to story or you want to anything else here? I'm just wondering when we can fit in a Turok season now oh yeah boy that'd be that would be just as much fun to play and create as it would be to listen to. I'll bet, yeah. <laughs> opens on a splash screen of the main character, Red, standing next to the body of a man impaled by a giant ornate sword, the Transistor. This sword talks to her, suggesting that, quote, they're not going to get away with this, end quote, which uh, really sets out for you your mission. You're on uh, something of a mission of vengeance. As Red, you you pull that sword from the body and set out to find whoever did this to uh, the man in the street. The setting is Cloudbank, which is this very neon cyberpunk city. It has uh, big Roaring Twenties vibes. Red travels up a street and is attacked by a mysterious enemy known as The Process, these weird semi-shapeless white robotic creatures. This is where the boundaries of the area are locked, and you need to defeat all of the enemies before moving on. This manifestation of the process is one of the more basic enemy types that you'll be encountering throughout the game. It's called a creep. It's a little white sphere with pointy legs. And after combat, Red uses a breach ability on some nearby white pillars to move into a nearby alley. The next combat encounter teaches you that turn-based combat variant. And uh, then you move across this cool, it's, it's almost from a side-scrolling perspective, uh, as opposed to the general isometric view, where Red travels across this bridge, and uh, the city is laid out in the background, so you really get a, a glimpse of the breadth of Cloudbank. You can use a telescope here that lets Red see the empty set, uh, building with spotlights that the sword tells her they need to get away from as quickly as possible. So what does Red do? She heads toward the empty set. Some process hovers over a dying woman who's partially pixelated and is defacing a nearby building, turning the building into a hazy white blob. This is uh, some real troubling foreshadowing for the direction of Cloudbank in the future. Red defeats that process, and uh, the sword talks to the dying woman, And tells Red that the dying woman wants to come along with them. So this is our first instance of the transistor absorbing a person. Uh, That person becomes a new ability, and we get a little bit of information about that person the next time we hit an access point in the city.
1: It kind of, you know, informs us what's happened, because the game doesn't really explain the situation Mm -hmm. that well, and this is, you know... I think, supposed to be the moment where you go, okay, yeah, so the sword absorbed that man, and uh, Red's voice as well, because I don't think we mentioned it, but we know Red is is mute at this point. She's lost her voice. Right,
0: yeah, and, and so she, she is a singer by trade, so this is particularly
1: cruel. Yeah, she got uh, partially absorbed. And we know this, too, from the access terminals, because the main ability that you start with, uh, Crash, mm-hmm. equipping that
0: in different slots is how you unlock Red's lore. As you travel through CloudBank, you encounter these OVC terminals. These provide exposition through news articles that you can read, and there's a comment section at the bottom of each of the articles. You can't manually enter things into that comment section, but Red, the character, communicates her thoughts to the transistor using the comment section since her voice has been taken away. So you'll see this at the bottom of the screen after you read an article. OVC terminals are also where we
1: get exposure to uh, Junction (laughs) Jans. Oh, the pizza shop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Junction Jans gets brought up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red and her her companion there. Are big fans of Junction Jans. Yeah, there's a great scene I love later on where in one of the early terminals you can actually put in a delivery order. Yes. For a for a pizza, and then much later in the game when you get to Red's apartment, you can get like a little. It's not quite a cutscene. It's kind of like some. It's just like still art of right. Red hanging out, eating the pizza.
0: <laughs> yeah, with the transistor like leaned on her chair. Yeah, and she's using it
1: as a coat rack. I'm looking uh-huh. at the picture right now. Yeah, it's it's very good. It's wonderful. It's one of the great scenes of the game.
0: He's, he's a big fan of the sea monster, the, the seafood pizza. <laughs> I love it. We also start finding posters of Red in this section of the game, which conveys to us that she was a mover and shaker here in Cloud Bank. She was one of the most popular pop artists who's sang at a cabaret, the empty set, which is where we're headed. We find a wall locked by switches, and the sword observes that that wall didn't used to be there. This, gameplay-wise, teaches us about the value of freezing time with turn, so you can hit both of those switches uh, simultaneously as time is frozen, but also conveys to us that the city is starting to change in some alarming ways. There is uh, troubling evolution going on here with Cloudbank. It's... I forgot
1: about this part. It's a little weird because the idea of using turn to
0: solve puzzles Mm -hmm. does not really come up again. No, it doesn't. Feels like maybe an abandoned idea. Yeah. We see some more evidence of the city's decay in the next square, where the walls have been entirely converted to white blobs by the process. And this is where we first encounter the Jerk. Not Steve Martin, but rather a uh, a powerful version of the process. Yeah, he's
1: like a big heavy uh, kind of fighter whose main move is to repeatedly slam his fists into the ground over and over as he moves, Mm -hmm. uh, doing pretty good damage. This was the first enemy where I started uh, trying to play around with um, making sure I didn't end my turn next to things, because if you end your turn right next to it uh, and he just starts slamming the ground over and over... I don't know if we have Jaunt at this point. We might, but yeah. I don't remember. Either if you don't have it equipped or if it's overloaded or whatever, then, you know, you're just stuck getting hammered by this thing over and over and over again until turn
0: comes back up. Right. You don't have a lot of invincibility frames. You're going to you're gonna lose a lot of health to this guy. Yeah. This gets us to Red's motorcycle, where she uh, drives it in uh, kind of a brief cutscene to the empty set. And we hear about the Camarada for the first time, and we'll, we'll find out a little bit here, we'll find out more later, but in essence this seems to be some kind of sinister cabal, controlling events from behind the scenes in the city. Once we arrive at the empty set, we battle a new enemy called the Young Lady that teleports after being hit. So this short-circuits some of your comboing that you might be trying to do in a turn, because you, you, you'll you generally get one hit-off on the young lady, and then she'll appear somewhere else in the area. And if you've set up an entire combo in turn, then you've wasted most of the time. Yeah, it, it encourages you to end your turn early, which is something that you can do. Yeah. Um, and so it recovers more quickly when you do that. Inside at the empty set, we find a nightclub where Red was a cabaret-style singer. There's... A little bit of flavor here that you don't need to engage in, but you can have Red hum when you arrive. This, if I understand correctly, was something that the voice actress for Red, uh, the the singer who sings some some songs that appear later on in the game, added to the character. She thought that this character, who uh, was unable to speak, but who oriented so much of her life around the use of her voice, would find some way to communicate her emotions even if she couldn't use words. So that's where we get this hum sequence. That also reminds me that you can throw the transistor in the air while you're running around. As far as I can tell, it has no mechanical benefit, but it makes it feel like you're running faster.
1: Yeah, it's just called Flourish. You like uh-huh. spin the sword and throw it and jump up and catch it as you move. It's just something to spam while you
0: walk around mm-hmm. for for fun. Yeah, it's like if you're playing a Mega Man game or a Mario game and you're not constantly jumping, what are you doing? Yeah. We get a flashback here in the empty set of what happened just before the start of the game. The camarada tried to kill Red with a glowing sword. There's, uh, I guess we see about four of them here. Uh, I'm not sure if we see their faces here, really, but it, you can just tell that there's this uh, group of antagonistic, well-dressed individuals who throw the transistor at Red. A man steps in front of her and gets killed in her place, then starts talking through the sword. And uh, that, of course, is Red's lover, who was murdered by the Camarada, and who now inhabits the Transistor. I don't think we ever get a name for him, do we?
1: I don't think so either. That seems like the kind of thing that's probably, like, buried in a lore chunk somewhere that I maybe, didn't unlock. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just a, an intentional
0: choice not to do that. Um,
1: yeah, I don't think we ever get a name.
0: Yeah, I don't know. And we don't even see his face in the lore dumps. If you uh, get to the access points, he's, like, cut off below the neck, I think, if I recall correctly.
1: Uh, Toward the end, we get a shot of him from behind, I think, uh, when we see him
0: in, what's it called, the country? That's true. That's true. Inside the transistor. That actually reminds me of something... I don't know if it's an inconsistency or what's going on with that, but the sword's absorption of people seems to work differently kind of arbitrarily, because we see a vision of him inside the sword in this, uh, I don't know, uh, kind of idyllic farm setting. But he says he's alone there, so I don't know where all of the other people absorbed by the sword go. Are they in their own separate version of the uh, the space? I, I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: they don't really... Flesh out the specifics behind how the transistor works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't improve the game. Yeah, I think the way they did
0: it's probably fine,
1: you know? You have to kind of meet it at its terms.
0: Right, yeah, I don't need a lot of complex cosmology for this world that I'll only visit
1: once. Yeah, I don't need a 30-minute long YouTube video detailing exactly how...
0: (laughs) What happens to people inside the transistor? You can picture exactly the thumbnail too, right? It'd be shouting at you on YouTube. Transistor explained. Yeah, tip of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you walk us through this first boss fight here, Spencer? Yeah. So uh the first boss
1: is Sybil. Mm-hmm. She is a member of the Camarada who has been uh, converted by the process. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've like said it right yet, but you know what? we've observed in the game at this point is that whatever these creatures are are uh absorbing and taking over not just people but the actual like infrastructure of the city. Mm-hmm. It's like this creeping like fungus or plague or something, except it's like it's like a computer. It's it it's it's like a computer virus in real life. Yeah <laughs> know well, how so... to describe it. It's yeah. like digitizing everything into this weird
0: uh, like, blocky, modular, mm-hmm. like, structure. It feels kind of like the game is taking place in a computer, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, one of the other elements that we've encountered at OVC terminals at this point is that citizens of CloudBank have the ability to change environmental elements by vote. So they can change the color of the sky or districts of the city where bridges lead, that sort of thing. So there, this environment doesn't seem to be entirely organic to start with. Yeah, so um, you have to
1: deplete Sybil's health bar multiple times, mm-hmm. which is something that happens in this game. I don't know for sure. I think it works on a similar principle to you, where every time you deplete a health bar, they lose one of their abilities. Mm-hmm. So it gets easier the longer the fight goes on, as opposed to harder, like multi-phase bosses typically go.
0: Right, paradoxically. Yeah, I think I like this better, Yeah, but it still has its flaws. Yeah, the fight may get harder for you as it goes on because your abilities may get depleted. So it adds this element of attrition on both sides of the combat. And you
1: can't swap out abilities in the middle of combat either. Mm -hmm. So on a longer scale, I like this system because it makes you experiment like we mentioned, but it does feel slightly lame when you're at the end of a boss fight and maybe you haven't been doing great but you've been getting by so both you and the boss are down to one ability each and you're just sitting there throwing basic
0: projectiles back and forth at each other Exactly yeah it's it's turned from some kind of cool magical combat to just two people duking it out punching each other in the street You know when you put it that way it makes me think of the fight
1: scene in They Live and now I like this more <laughs> <laughs> good good
0: pull there spencer
1: one of the wrinkles here is that uh so sybil has quite a few ads that she brings into the fight including mm-hmm. cheerleaders which are uh, they look like little satellite dishes that provide yeah. a shield to other enemies so you yeah. have to deal with them first
0: yeah and and they can shield one another and the shield turns off intermittently so you'll uh, on some turns you'll be able to hit some of them but not others so you, you have to adapt once the fight
1: ends, you get to absorb Sybil into the transistor. Mm-hmm. And this is where you get your first, uh, you know, learning about her is where you start to learn more about the Camarada. Right. So they were, most of them worked behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And Sybil was more of their, she was like their, their their front person. She was the one that reached out and made connections with politicians right. and celebrities. And uh, it was really the one that interfaced between... Um, Royce isn't the mastermind. He's he's the last one you deal with, but he's wasn't the one in charge.
0: Right. That was Asher Kendrell. Yeah. And uh, Grant Kendrell. They they were really the the two masterminds here.
1: Yeah. So those two, you know, are doing their plans. Royce seems to be like the technical person. He, I think, is the one that developed the transistor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Sybil is the one that just goes out and uh, you know pushes the agenda, recruits people, networks, things like that. They're PR guru. Exactly. Um, I believe
0: she is also a uh, a rival singer to Red. Yeah, you get the impression that at least some of the anger, whereas the anger towards Red by the rest of the Camarada was more professional. Sybil's was more personal. Your notes here says after this fight, we take a speedboat to the mm-hmm. next area. I don't remember the speedboat. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's uh, it's short lived. It's basically just a it's it's a non interactive cutscene. It's similar to the motorcycle, where it's kind of a side view, where we get red uh, on the speedboat traveling through a canal in Cloud Bank, and uh, the the transistors monologuing over it.
1: Yeah. Um, here we're introduced to a new enemy called in the next area mm-hmm. a new enemy called Snapshots. Yeah. These are interesting. They act as kind of like a little flashbang grenade, or the uh, actually that's a, the, the better analogy is those little like camera robots in Half Life
0: Two that fly in front of your
1: face and then use the camera flash to um, blind you. Yeah, you don't see this in
0: third-person games very much. No,
1: I don't remember if this happens here or if this is an upgrade to the enemy later, but Mm. at a certain point, too, the snapshots will generate these, like, corrupted zones when you use turn.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's later. yeah, Yeah, that's one of their upgrades.
1: Yeah, it creates, like, these obstacles where if you move through them while planning your turn, it, like, kicks you out of it. It, yeah, like, and you can't see everything.
0: what's underneath it. You can't see what enemies are in there to hit. Yeah. They look like floating cameras, too, eh? Yep.
1: Here's where we run into our first back door. Mm-hmm. I think there's a throwaway line that mentions that this is something that Sybil constructed, and now that we've absorbed her is the reason why we can start to see them. Oh, cool. I didn't catch that. Yeah, they're little air like doorways that pop up that let you teleport to this beach area. Mm-hmm. And there's just like... Uh... Like fun little things here. There's like a beach ball you can kick around, mm-hmm. a hammock you can lay in, uh, there's a jukebox that lets you play different tracks from the game that you may have unlocked. Right, and the music's so good, you might want to hang out and listen to it. Yeah. And it's also where those tests are that we mentioned, where uh, there's little challenge encounters you can do for some free XP yep. uh, if you need a little bump. Yeah. What's this event cancel at the OVC terminal you noted? Is this where we, we start... The whole city's being taken over by the process and... Right. You are playing the game and you're kind of like in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. So the scope of how far the destruction is spreading uh, is kind of conveyed to you through news stories that you get through the OVC terminals. So I assume your note here is just indicating that this is where we start to see it ramp up and it's telling us that
0: it's spreading a lot farther beyond just where we're seeing right precisely yeah this is yeah. uh, there's supposed to be like a fashion week event and uh, it's been canceled for the the safety of everybody at in cloud bank it, they're still a bit cagey in the language on the ovc terminals like you get the impression that uh the the newscasters are trying not to alarm the populace at the amount of the city that is being overrun but it's happening so quickly that we're going to see the the tone get more and more alarmed as we go. The
1: transistor confirms for us that the process is a uh, tool of the Camarada, right, mm-hmm. that's been sent by them to stop Red. Yeah. Um, again, I don't remember exactly if it's made explicit here, but the transistor is a very important tool for them, uh, specifically in terms of controlling the process. So the fact right. that Red has this now is uh, causing this pro- the process to... The camera are losing control of it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the transistor was the only thing that that could stop it, and now they've created a problem that that they have no control over.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the scope of the destruction here was not their plan. Right. Uh, So we're in the Canals District, Mm -hmm. and we're introduced to Cluckers here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a very super giant name for an enemy. It is. Yeah, they're uh, artillery chickens. Mm -hmm. They shoot these big lobbing uh, exploding projectiles from great distances.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like how arbitrary the process is in terms of what it manifests as. We get some dialogue here about how spooky and
1: empty the streets are. Mm-hmm. We notice that the skyline is starting to disappear. Yeah. Uh, and we can see like big armies of process in the distance. Like mm-hmm. the, the full scope of what's happening here is starting to uh, unfold very quickly.
0: Right. And they're sometimes watching you from the foreground or background as well. Process that's out of reach that you can't do combat with, but uh, that, that's keeping an eye on red.
1: There's no VC terminal here that uh, announces this, and I think Red leaves a comment telling people to evacuate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: We move out to the high rise district, and that's where Red lives. And yeah. this is where we get that cool scene I mentioned uh, Junction Jams. With the pizza. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and when you leave, you lock yourself out on purpose. So Red's intention is to
0: not come home. Yeah, this is a little kind of goosebumps moment because the transistor realizes it mid dialogue where uh, he's saying, oh no, you left your keys in your house, and then he says, oh, right, I got it. Yeah, this is, it's looking more like a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. There is also an OVC terminal here in the High Rise District that reveals that over 100,000 people are already missing, and that the process is spreading. So things are very quickly escalating from the little graffiti-oriented monsters that we saw only an hour earlier. The most noteworthy part of the high-rise area, though, is this blurry, gigantic background creature that kind of zooms in in the background. It'll pop in in the foreground. You'll just get a quick glimpse of it. Uh, and any time that it appears, the transistor's speech starts getting slurred and distorted. Yeah, whatever this big creature is, it's it's
1: interfering with, with the transistor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the scale of it uh, is conveyed through it attack you do, it doesn't really come on screen all at once but mm-hmm. throughout this whole area as you're moving through and fighting things uh you'll have to avoid it has like a spear tail right and it'll right. come down from the sky uh and plunge into the ground and you have to constantly avoid it mm-hmm. so you're uh, just seeing
0: change. the the tail and it's the size of a building
1: yeah the the scale of this enemy is beyond any other process that you've encountered up to
0: this point mm-hmm Which takes us to our next boss encounter. This creature is called the Spine of the World. It's positioned at the top of the screen. You kind of have its head and it's uh, kind of clinging onto the side of the building that you're on. And so it will engage in attacks that you need to avoid and then you uh, slash at it. You eventually, the, the head explodes and you run inside the Spine of the World's body and slice its heart to finish it off. The inside of it is very gold. It looks a lot like a Klimt painting.
1: So this is the uh, kind of headquarters of the Camarada. There's a series of elevators that you have to go up, right, and climb up to the top of it. Uh, and through the OVC terminals, you start getting messages from Asher, mm-hmm. uh, a member of the Camarada, And he you know, tells you that him and his husband, Grant, have walled themselves in at the top of the tower. Right. They talk a little bit about the, the philosophy of the Camerata. Mm-hmm. Um, they express anger at Cloud Bank. Constantly changing to suit the whims of its people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they are striving for something more stable. Yeah. The creed is when everything changes, nothing changes.
0: It evokes that tension between authoritarianism and democracy, right? The idea that this strong central authority in the camaradas' mind themselves can dictate a higher culture than can be achieved by the people just voting on everything.
1: We learn of the four members. Uh, you know, we've already met uh, Sybil Rice, and then we've got. Uh, Asher and Grant Kendrell. Uh, and then the fourth member that we haven't met yet really is Royce Brackett. Yeah. They talked to us about how the process was, you know, started or at least harnessed by the Camarada. Mm-hmm. I don't remember like the exact origin of it, but.
0: No, I um, think it's it's kind of implied that Royce found it, that, yeah. that they, they found it somewhere in this world and they believed that they could use it to achieve their political ambitions. Kind of wipe the slate clean and then rebuild. Yeah. As they see fit. Mm-hmm.
1: The process can't be stopped without the transistor. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they don't have the transistor anymore, which is why the process is not being stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red was picked by the Camerata um, for her, quote, point of view, but we don't really know what that means yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we get the idea that they were targeting, you know, influential people.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like all of the abilities that we've been getting are from influential people around Cloud Bank that were uh, struck down by the transistor. Yeah. Um Grant
1: is with Asher, but we know he isn't doing well ever since he lost the transistor. The idea is, you know, he's he's growing sick.
0: Yeah. Do we I don't Do know... we get the
1: impression if it's a physical sickness or just a mental sickness? I mean I don't know if it doesn't I don't think it's explicit. No. But the vibe I took away from it was that he's somehow infected or debilitated from the extended like interaction with the process via the transistor. Okay. And without the transistor anymore, he's
0: basically deteriorating. That's really neat. I had taken the opposite perspective that he was growing more despondent, that that his uh, mental state was falling apart after he lost the transistor, uh, which leads him to commit suicide, rather than that his um, that that his physical state was also decaying. So that's
1: neat. I think Light well, I think asher commits suicide i didn't know that grant also did
0: yeah i i don't think it's entirely clear we know that asher did yeah with grant we find them both dead i had understood that grant killed himself and then asher killed himself but it could also be that grant had died and then asher had killed himself there's another cute interaction
1: in this area as mm-hmm. we're climbing up the tower where red finds a little break room so she goes into a. Uh, like, use the restroom. Yeah. But she leaves the transistor outside. Yep, leaned up against it. Which, you know, it's cute, because obviously she doesn't want him going into the bathroom with her. Uh But, you know, given the circumstances and the importance of that sword and how everyone is trying to, like, kill her to get to that sword, (laughs) I mean, maybe... I don't know. (laughs) Uh Red is a woman of culture. She's got her priorities in order. Yeah, it's very cute. I'm not complaining. No, no,
0: it's good. It's good.
1: Once we get up to the top... We find that both Asher and Grant are dead. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's kind of like a farewell note from Asher, yeah, to Red that just says "see you in the country." Mm-hmm. A pivotal phrase. I'm trying to remember what abilities corresponds to because you do absorb
0: Grant. Yeah, I didn't make a note of which. Uh, I didn't make a note of which abilities are associated with individual people, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, so I, I forget which is which, but you absorb them, and that allows the transistor to learn from Asher's memories where you need to go, uh, and that's fairview Mm -hmm. that's where the final member of the camarada royce is held up
0: yep yeah and the transistor takes a bit of glee in absorbing grant who was the one who'd killed him in the introduction yep um
1: we see we can get 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 a little environmental storytelling Mm -hmm. here we find i think it's like a whiteboard right it is yeah uh it's got a, a flow chart of all the camarada's plans and it shows that the completion rate of their plans are is only at 14%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they um, weren't so good at this. Yeah, things went
0: off the rails fast. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I really yeah. like that about the Camarada in this. The the enemies in this game are depicted as very human. And we this is where we find out that the Camarada built the transistor themselves. Mm-hmm. So yep, yeah, this was engineered by them. The next section is Goldwalk where Red takes a boat again to the empty set, her old club from earlier on in the game, and we get a pretty spooky atmospheric scene here where you leave the club past a bunch of silent clucker enemies watching Red from the audience seats. They've, uh, they, they've multiplied and they've taken over and have entirely filled up every possible space in the empty set. I want to double-check something, because this scene, with all the cluckers watching you, all you right. can, like, sing, I think, and they, like, sing along. That's true. Along. I think you're right. I, I don't think I did that, but I think you can do it.
1: Yeah, and it reminded me a lot of the scene in Portal 2, where mm-hmm. all of the, like, the big thing of turrets are looking
0: at you, singing opera. Yes, it looks very similar to the end of Portal 2.
1: Yeah, and the the, the turrets are... Like, pretty similar in shape and aesthetic to The Cluckers. Cluckers, Yeah. So, um, I mean, Portal 2 came out in 2011. When did Transistor
0: come out? 2014. So, probably a deliberate homage.
1: Yeah, it had to have been.
0: Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but now that you say it, it's impossible to ignore. Yeah. We find an OVC terminal when we leave the empty set, telling a grim final story from the reporter we've been hearing from. They have gathered with Cloudbank's refugees at the eastern edge of the city, and the process devours them all around with the, uh, along with the surrounding landscape. So there's not much of Cloudbank left. We never get a feel for what's outside of Cloudbank. It feels like it's kind of the edge of the universe, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of, like, storytelling outside of
0: the bounds of the city. I found that a really engaging and kind of creepy part of this game, and it's part of what made me think that this is... The setting itself is a simulation, right? That that there is no uh landscape outside of Cloud Bank. I think that's part of the theme too of like the like the whole cyberpunk
1: thing takes place in a future where like I think the trend of population moving into major metropolitan areas mm-hmm. has just been pushed further and further to the extreme, mm-hmm. to the point where that's basically just the bound, like the limits of the city, is where everybody is.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and and nesting virtual layers is also often a theme of cyberpunk. So I guess the idea that that there's a virtual layer that all of the characters are living in, but then there's another virtual layer, a step down, that's inside the transistor, makes sense with that. Uh, I was going to say steampunk, cyberpunk uh, vibe as well. Yeah. The spine returns at this point, the spine of the world, and starts distorting the Transistor again. Though strangely enough, we don't get a boss fight this time. It's just an environmental enemy that its, it's tail keeps popping back in and you need to avoid it. It will actually destroy the process as well at times. The Transistor starts getting pretty mopey here, very kind of sad drunk vibes about not getting to see Red face-to-face again, and how despondent he is about being stuck inside the, uh, the transistor. This is where he describes it as a really lonely existence, that it's like he can look up and see her at a distance, but otherwise there's nobody else inside. At this point, we start getting cool black scenery with uh, spooky trees and cubes. It's like uh, the area is both becoming more abstract, but also more organic. There are black buildings in the scenery with red windows, and uh, we find ourselves ambushed by a horde of cells and young ladies where we need to escape rather than fight. And I think this is kind of neat because uh, this area starts bringing in encounters that aren't set apart from the surrounding space. You just have fights and don't get like a little experience point counter at the end. You don't get the area blocked off or anything. It's just roving enemies now. I don't think I've ever seen a game go from having traditional, somewhat JRPG-style encounters to having just enemies roving the area and attacking you. I just observed that while I was playing this, and I thought it was kind of a neat way to speak to the evolving danger of the process. They've broken out of the very structure of the game, the encounter structure. At this point, we travel back past the beginning areas of the game, but most of the environment has been eroded, including the skyline. We get a new enemy here called the man, which can go invisible and create minions called haircuts. I don't know why they're called haircuts. Did you get a, you well, get an idea about the, that?
1: Well, it's because the, the haircut enemies kind of look like the hair on the top of the, the men.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I guess I wasn't looking closely enough. I was playing this in portable mode on Switch a lot of the time, so some of the finer so, details went went amiss.
1: The the like man enemies remind me a lot of, uh, it, if you like the the. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a more maybe more recognizable reference, but like the cover art for the game Dead Cells. Yes, like they kind of look like that. Yeah, they're pretty faceless. The, yeah, well, it's just like yeah, the the head is like this big, uh, like flowy, spiky, almost like a almost like a tumbleweed uh-huh. looking thing, and then the haircuts look like that just gets detached from them and then sent out as their own thing.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I I don't know how I missed that, but that that seems like a good uh, way to describe it. Uh, I hate these enemies, by the way. Yeah, they're real tough. They're they are real tough to fight uh, because they they really undermine your approach with turn in that. You'll, you'll attack them, they'll be invisible, then you can't do anything, and you need to leave turn, let it rebuild, hope that they become visible again, and then activate it. it. It just throws off your entire rhythm to combat, which is mechanically engaging at this point because it's it's a wrinkle in what has become a probably a pretty reliable tech setup for you, but can be kind of frustrating because they lengthen the time of battles.
1: Also, I mean, and maybe this was a function of the limiters I had on, mm-hmm. but the damage that the hair... When the haircuts die, they explode. Mm-hmm. And both the radius and damage of that explosion is ridiculous. I had to completely change up my moveset because a lot of the stuff I was doing was somewhat short range. Oh, and okay. I just kept, like, no matter what I did, as soon as I dealt with a haircut, I would just take, like, 80% of my max health
0: in, like, one hit. I did lose some health when they exploded, but it wasn't quite as dramatic. So I think part of it must have been the limiters. And I think this is where you said you eased back on the limiters, right? For that reason.
1: Yeah, it was around here, I think.
0: Yeah. 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 I scaled
1: back on that. And this is also when I started approaching the uh, the rapid fire uh, damage over time thing. Mm-hmm. So just sitting back and trying to like keep that going out constantly to d- deal with uh, the haircuts being thrown out and
0: coming at you. Right. It's interesting how few different enemy types there are for a game that really pushes you to experiment and succeeds at that. I think that's, it's a real economy of design here, I feel like. We mentioned it in passing, but one thing the game does do that's neat
1: is it upgrades the enemies over time. So you'll run into new versions of like a clucker, for example, and it'll freeze and be like clucker Mm 2.0. And like, it'll let you know that you know, it does something different now, so it does give you some variety in that it keeps like adding more to the move set of existing enemies. Yeah, even if
0: the the like shell that it's contained in is like the same. Once we get past the starting area, we find a floating TV monitor with Royce on it, who starts talking to us, and this gets us to the Fairview District. Fairview starts to get uh
1: pretty abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a point here where you go through a door and you end up in like upside down, like walking on the ceiling. So the process is not only taking over and corrupting like physical objects, it seems to be
0: altering like reality and physics itself. Do you see this, given the Art Deco and Art Nouveau visual design of almost taking the environment back to like a different artistic movement or advancing? I don't know. I, I guess they're somewhat contemporary but moving into like cubism and uh abstract art and so forth oh man i my dumb caveman brain is not (laughs) equipped for that discussion i was (laughs) just thinking because we have these like kind of escher elements here we have uh i don't know what artistic movement escher was a part of but it's uh it just feels like it's moving into a more dolly-esque surreal space
1: I can agree with. I, I recognize Salvador Dali
0: and <laughs> surrealism. I can get that sweet mustache; you'd pick him out of a crowd really? anywhere. Yeah, I could throw my two cents in on that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. and that—that that is a stray thought that I did not have while I was playing the game, and just had right now. Royce is uh, talking to you here this whole time,
1: following you around in his little TV monitor, mm-hmm. uh, and he says that he believes you can create a new version of CloudBank. Mm-hmm. Um, now that the process has pretty much fully consumed it. And you have the transistor, which is a tool that lets you, it lets you control it. So I, I, we skipped over this, Mm -hmm. but in the transition scenes from area to area, right, there's usually some way that red moves. So we mentioned the motorcycle and we mentioned the speedboat, uh, the speedboat at the end of the uh, bracket towers. Uh Uh-huh. You find swarms of flying process confined in these, like, vats mm-hmm. that obviously Grant and Asher were, like, experimenting with or working with. Right. And the way you move to the next area after that is you break them out and you use the transistor to have them carry you. Yeah. That This is the part that made me remember that because it, it, it is important to note that not at this point Red has demonstrated that she's not just able to, def- like, kill the process with it. She does have a degree
0: of control over them. Do you see this as her point of view? That she was being targeted by the Camarada for? That she's they They had come to the conclusion that she would be good at this? I don't think so. Because I think okay. Royce is also able to control them, right? That's
1: true. And they were trying to assassinate Red... Well, I think they wanted to absorb her. it's 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 sorta of nebulous, but because it's people of influence, um, and like particularly there's like some artists and stuff too. Exactly. I think that they're trying to absorb the personality of people whose like artistic vision and influence that they want to somehow harness when they
0: rebuild. Gotcha by bank gotcha. using the, the process. That's how I interpreted it. That makes so much more sense because she was never supposed to have the transistor. She just happened to be the one person who they tried to absorb who they failed at. She yes. she got a hold of the transistor instead. I gotcha.
1: But then, it, that's a little weird too, because there's certain points you run into people that it kind of implies the camarada assassinated, but they don't get absorbed until you come along and absorb them. Yeah, I couldn't tell if those
0: were people who had just been inadvertently killed by the process, or if they were intentional targets. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it seemed like they'd been killed by the process rather than the Camarada, but maybe that's an academic distinction, right? Like the the Camarada created the process, yeah. So maybe you just got there before the process had absorbed them, or because the process got out of hand, the idea was that the process would kill the people, and then the Camarada would arrive with the transistor and absorb them. I, I guess any of these things are possible. So it's open to interpretation. A lot of this is not explicit. For sure. And it it
1: helps the game on replay that you notice new things. The OVC terminals that you find here are logs from Royce talking about their plans, Mm -hmm. what they're doing, why they did it, kind of what happened. Um, It's no longer connected to the outside world. The implication being at this point that everything outside of this is pretty
0: much gone. Right. Yeah, this uh, these OVC terminals are actually where we discover that the process was originally what had been used by uh, the the voters of CloudBank to alter the landscape. So the process has actually been harnessed by the Camarada and put to sinister ends, but it was an intentional part of the design of CloudBank. We should mention, too, that Royce's voice acting is really good. It is.
1: Though I really like the way that this guy delivers the lines and the cadence with which he says them. Mm-hmm. Bear with me here. This is going to be a really weird mix of things, Mm -hmm. but I I think I've hit the nail on the head with this. Yeah. It's kind of a mix between G-Man from Half-Life and Jennifer Jason Leigh's character from the film Annihilation.
0: Okay, I can see both of those things.
1: Yeah, like it's got this really... Flat, emotionless affect, mm-hmm. and the cadence with which he strings some sentences together is like also kind of off, like how G Man says it.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's a little unsettling. You can see why this fella needed a PR guru in uh, Sybil, eh? Yeah. Yeah, the, the voice actor, just to draw attention to him, is Soon Krish Bala. He uh, has been on just a ton of stuff, but he's, uh, it says here on IMDb that he's known for being in Castle and The Walking Dead. Uh, as recurring roles. So this guy really gets around.
1: <laughs> now I'm picturing without Sybil, I'm like picturing Royce just like trying to show up at a party and just like cornering someone and trying to lecture them on <laughs> his political philosophy. And them just being like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. Yes. This guy, ooh. You see, when everything changes, nothing changes. So we have this thing called the, the process.
0: I feel like we've all met this guy at a party at <laughs> yeah. one time or another. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think we both probably give this game a recommendation, so you know it's worth playing through to learn some of these specifics yourself. Yeah, for sure. But this is yeah, this is the point of the game where we get a little bit of background about Royce's interaction with the process and what they were hoping to accomplish with harnessing mm-hmm. and things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of flavor.
1: Once we get to Royce's studio proper, uh, we see kind of a silhouette on a race platform in the foreground. Mm-hmm. We can't interact with him yet, um, and he's directing you through this these dark hallways. Where he wants you to put the transistor back in, uh, its cradle. It's this big monolithic, like tower that almost looks like a big version of the transistor mm-hmm. with a slot in it for where it goes. And this is not explained much, but I think it implies that, you know, like all the data that has been harvested from you know, the traces from the people that it's absorbed, right? Mm-hmm. Gets kind of uploaded into this, and this is the larger mechanism that they have been using to try to control the process. Oh. Um, Thank you for everything.
0: explaining that. I did not gather that from having played it.
1: Yeah, because it looks like a big version of the transistor. Yeah. And even though red is able to control the like swarm like we talked about, you know, you get the idea that, you know, just having the sword in your hand is not enough to control this mm-hmm. sprawling you know, like, the process, like, they wanted to, right? I think it, this is a, like, a part of a larger mechanism. Yeah, this
0: feels very clearly like the source of the process. This is the source of yeah. the ability to make changes to CloudBank. We get a pretty, like, sad scene here, mm-hmm. right? As,
1: you know, the, the transistor is talking about how, you know, you know, you have to do it. You have to save everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like this is a goodbye. Right. And he, oh, he tells Red that he loves her mm-hmm. before you put the transistor into the cradle. Yep. This next part, I don't have much of an explanation for. I have no idea how or why this happens.
0: No, it feels like it's uh, kind of a purpose-driven development, doesn't it? Yeah, so they uh, allude to the
1: kind of uh, existence inside the Transistor as the country. Mm -hmm. It's just this, it's like a pleasant farmscape kind of thing where the consciousness of these people sort of like project themselves into. Big Afterlife vibes. Yeah. And once you put the transistor in the cradle, the screen goes white, and then both Red and Royce appear in the country, Mm. and both of them have a transistor. Right. So, it's weird. Like, it's not clear why cradling the transistor brought you both to this area. It's not clear why both of you now have a sword.
0: Mm -hmm. Um. It seems that Royce was expecting this to happen, at least.
1: Yeah, he's not acting surprised by this at all. Um, But then you have a transistor duel. Yeah. Thankfully, it does, at the start of the fight, it prompts you, like, the access point interface so that you're not stuck with whatever loadout you had going
0: into this. Mm -hmm. Like, you do get to change it before every attempt. I complain a lot about final boss battles in games, but this is one of my favorites, where it's uh, Red versus Royce. Both with access to the same abilities in a field of little obstacles that you can exploit.
1: Yeah, you, you have the same mechanics, so you have to beat him four times, I think, mm-hmm. which corresponds to how much you have to be beaten, right? Every time you beat him, he loses
0: one of his abilities. Right, and he can use turn to freeze you and set up a whole bunch of, of combo attacks on you.
1: Yes. And I believe your turn recharges at the same rate for both of you. So you end up doing like a real back and forth. Yeah. He uses turn, you use turn. You don't want to wait too long, because if he comes out of turn and he does a lot of damage to you, if you try to kind of move around a little bit Mm to try to get in a better position before you start turn Mm -hmm. and you take too long in his recharges, he will use it like instantly and get another combo in on you and do a lot of damage.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Even though turn adds this turn-based element to the fight, the real time is more important here than in any other combat encounter in the game. Yeah. um, This is a fun fight. Yeah. Just going back and forth and duking it out with Royce. It feels like a final test of everything that you've done in the game without being too onerous. Yeah. I didn't have to replay it, you know? It it was tough. We both got down to our last ability, I think. Same thing happened to me. But uh, I came out ahead, yeah, really, really carefully tuned, like a lot of the rest of this game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the idea if you both have the exact same movesets, you know, you're just kind of slugging it out back and forth one for one, and you just barely come out
0: ahead uh, with better planning. A classic Dark Link battle. Yeah. And that gets us to pretty much the end of the game. Red is back in Cloud Bank with the Transistor, and now she's able to write a new landscape. Yep, you can go through and interact with some
1: just kind of white blocks and Mm -hmm. make these big, cool statues. I think at one point there's a a line from The Transistor about rebuilding Junction Jans. (laughs) That's good. I didn't get that,
0: actually. That's nice. Yep. There's nothing more important in Cloud Bank than Junction Jans. Rather than recreating the world, however, Red decides to kill herself with The Transistor, to implant herself in the country with uh, her her dead lover. She uh, she finds his body and stabs herself through with the transistor, and then both of them are in the country.
1: Yeah, and that is a bleak scene, too. It's rough. Um, it's real, real, real sad. Yeah, because the transistor realizes what you're doing, and there's like a pretty long scene of him like begging and pleading with you not to do it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I got a lump in my throat even thinking of it. Goosebumps. Yeah,
1: um, especially since... Man, that's a gamble. It's not even clear that you're going to end up with him in the transistor. No. Because even though everyone else gets absorbed, there are some lines indicating that, like, it's almost like he can access their memories and stuff, yeah, but, but he doesn't really there. have
0: much interaction with them. Yeah, right. they're not there. But the, the silver lining on this cloud is that we do see them there together at the end. That's the uh, that's the end shot. Yeah. Let's talk final impressions, Spencer. What did you think about this game? I liked
1: it. So, I think the combat system is, you know, fun, mm-hmm. right? It encourages experimentation, which stops it from getting repetitive. Yeah. Um I think, you know, I like the lore bits, mm-hmm. right? I like reading about the different characters. Right. If you don't like that, I don't think you'll get as much out of it. Yeah. But, you know, the narrative itself is still pretty engaging and neat. Um it looks beautiful mm-hmm. uh the music is great the art is great um I think in terms of replayability i got i had a little bit more fun going through bastion again than I had going through this a second time interesting I'm just the opposite yeah but this is i mean I don't, this this holds up mm-hmm. like I, I i'm really happy that we replayed this and this gets like a hundred percent recommendation from me yeah. Uh, I still think my favorite super giant game has got to be Hades, mm-hmm. but saving uh, the best for last. Yeah, you should definitely play Transistor. Yeah, I don't remember. I didn't think it was just in a trailer for this game. There is a song associated with this, similar to like uh, the Wall song from Bastion mm-hmm. that everybody knows. Yeah, and that song from Transistor is really "We All Become One." Is that what it's called? Could be. Uh, but I didn't get that song in my playthrough this time, and I, it it was driving me nuts ever since I finished this, because I couldn't, I didn't think that that was just a song from the trailer, but I didn't encounter that song in the game this time, and I'm trying to it's not important. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad song. that you
0: brought that up. Though there are multiple vocal songs in this, uh, it, it yes. comes up in the documentary about the game where they they spent a lot of time writing multiple vocal songs about this. And there's a vinyl record version of it that you can get that has all those songs on it. So it does feel like there's a lot more music than what you actually encounter while you're playing. The song's called "We All Become" from the Transistor
1: soundtrack. I recommend listening to that at least because mm-hmm. that song is that song is fire. Oh, for sure. But yeah. What did you think of the game, Chris?
0: I absolutely love this game. It's a rare 10 out of 10 for me. It is definitely in my top 20 games I've ever played. I just fell in love with it the first time I played it and have revisited it maybe four or five times ever since. I got a physical copy of it for the Switch. It's uh it's not perfect. What is? I actually am not super into the lore of this strangely enough. Like I find it interesting, but I find the broader stroke's more interesting. I find the setting really compelling. It's, uh... Like, it's atmospheric and maybe a little spooky, but also really lived-in and, and pleasant. Like, Cloudbank Before It Falls Apart is a really beautiful space to explore. I just can't get enough of this place, and this game is only maybe, what, four or five hours long, I'd say? Maybe a little longer than that. Yeah, I'm trying to look at my playtime and
1: think, cause I've I've played through the game twice and I've got about nine hours on my profile.
0: So yeah, about four and a half hours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just very breezy. The, the art direction's superlative, the voice direction and voice acting is superlative. And the combat is brilliant because every time you play it, you try a different loadout. Uh, Even if it's not 3000 combinations, if it's not 1500 combinations, it's still a lot of combinations. So each time you play through, you can take the fights different ways. You can increase the difficulty through the limiters. It's a very modular, adaptable experience, and I think it is more rewarding each time I play it. That's that for our coverage of Transistor. We hope you've enjoyed listening and encourage you to come back next time for Sonic Adventure 2. In the interim, consider backing us at patreon.com/slash franchisefestival, where you get access to a bonus episode each month and even have the chance to vote on future episode topics. If you have any suggestions, you can also drop us a line on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest, or email us at franchisefestival at gmail.com. As for us, we're your hosts, Chris and Spencer. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye.